Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, I got word uh, today from uh, our pastor. He's uh, safely arrived at his uh, undisclosed destination for his relax- relaxing uh, vacation. So he's he's there safely. And uh, in his place tonight, we're very privileged to have Dr. Scott Stripling, who is the director of the Shiloh Dig in, in uh, Israel. And so we'll be hearing a lot about that. Uh, and so before we get started, though, we're going to have our normal uh, little silent prayer time for you to examine yourselves. Uh, <clears throat> and before we get started, and I'll open in prayer, and then I'll turn it over to uh, Scott. All right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have tonight to assemble as a local church, to look into your scripture, Father, for we know the Bible is based on real places and real events, uh, one of which we are going to learn about tonight. And we thank you so much, Father, for uh, Dr. Stripling coming out here and sharing these things with us. And we pray that you will help us concentrate on what he has to say tonight and that everything we do tonight will be to your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And so with that, I will turn the pulpit over to Scott. Yeah, let's see if I can. How about that? Hey, I'm, I'm trainable. <laughs> well, uh, good evening. Thanks for inviting me. And I'm excited to be sharing with you about something that's near and dear to my heart. Um, I've had the privilege of excavating four different conquest sites in Israel. And so my area of research focus or expertise, if you will, lies within that conquest period around 1400 B.C. Um, the thing is to get down to that level, because you know how an archaeological tell is, we go through layers, layers of cities and civilizations. And so to get down into that sweet spot, we excavate through everything. So we start in Islamic material and Byzantine material and then late Roman and then early Roman and Hellenistic and Persian and then Iron Two and then Iron One and down at the late Bronze Age and middle Bronze Age. So we're going through all these layers. So you develop an interest in those other time periods as you're going through that very systematically documenting because you're finding all kinds of really fascinating things, especially like in the New Testament period. Shiloh has a massive uh, early Roman or New Testament period settlement, as did Kerbin al-Makadr, the site that I previously excavated. <clears throat> so uh, you, you find all kinds of interesting things along the way, but I'm going to sort of zero in on that tabernacle period at Shiloh today. And I met some of you this last summer. You had a group that came to Shiloh. How many of you were there? Several. Well, this will really, I think, after having seen it, then this will really uh, mean a lot to you. <clears throat> uh, my goal is to finish early, so we'll have some time for Q&A. And I have found that one gets invited back when one finishes early rather than late. So uh, I will make that my goal. Um, I, I know there's also a good bit of interest in uh, talking about Mount Ebal. I understand that Aaron Lipkin was here not so long ago. And um, as you're probably aware, I was the one who excavated the, the Mount Ebal curse tablet. There was a list that was published today of the top ten finds in the history of biblical archaeology. And believe it or not, Three of the finds were things that I have been privileged to to excavate. So it's very humbling, something for which I'm very grateful and um, excited to talk to people who are interested in these things. Or as, as my wife would say, um, go talk with your fellow geeks. Now, my my wife has uh, has been a deer for 40 years. We just returned from an Alaskan cruise. 
celebrating our 40th anniversary. And I know some of you here have me beat, so you don't have to rub it in. But it was nice to escape the heat for just a little bit. Speaking of wives, you know, the great novelist Agatha Christie was married to a renowned archaeologist. Uh, worked with Leonard Woolley excavating the city of Ur. And uh, so you'll find in her novels like Murder on the Orient Express and so forth, there's always archaeology that's interwoven in there. But she was once asked, what's the greatest thing about being married to an archaeologist? And she paused and then finally answered, the older I get, the more interesting he finds me. Okay, so. All right, well, let's talk tabernacle. Um, starting with the text uh, itself, Exodus 31 tells us who built the tabernacle. So we actually know more than you might think offhand about the tabernacle. Starting from the text, we learn that it's a guy named Bezalel, who's the son of Uri, and a guy named Aholiab, who's the son of Ahisamach. And there's a possible inscription, Sinai 375a, that may actually have his name on it. But you see that God chose these men because they were very skilled and gifted in, in the crafts. They were able to build things and do things. I mean, you just read this. This is like the perfect guy, okay? Listen to this. He could fix anything, do anything. Nothing around your house would be broken. This would be just a really great guy. But um, God liked what he saw, and he said, I want these two guys to, to build the tabernacle, all its furniture, all of its furnishing. I trust them, and I'm the one who has given them skill to do these things. So we're assuming that before the Exodus that they were working in those crafts, that they had developed those metalworking skills and, and tapestry skills and textile skills and so forth. So this is, of course, at Sinai. Now, we learn that the dimensions of the tabernacle in Exodus 27, 11, and 12 are... It's a two-to-one ratio, so it's 100 to 50 by 5. And the thing is, when we're talking cubits, we're not exactly sure what a cubit is. We think that the old Egyptian cubit was about 20.6 inches. You often hear people say it's from the tip of your elbow to the tip of your finger. Only thing is on my arm, that's a different length than it is on your arm. And so standardization is a bit of a challenge. But the key is the two-to-one ratio. So however you exactly nail that down, you're looking for two-to-one ratios. And keep that in mind when I show you the buildings that we're looking at in a few minutes. Now, if you break that into meters, which is what we use in excavations in Israel, it's uh, 52 by 52.32 by 26.12 by 2.66. Um, so it's a significantly significant size to the to the tabernacle structure. And, of course, you have a holy place and a most holy place. And within sort of moving from the courtyard where you're going from secular space to sacred space and the, the further that you go in, you're increasingly entering into sacred space. Now, Joshua 18.1 tells us that the whole assembly of the Israelites gathered at Shiloh. The word Shiloh just means like tranquility, peace, sort of the cousin of, of Shalom. And they set up the tent of meeting there, the Mishkan, and the country was brought under their control. Now, it was also there in the entrance to the tent of meeting that Joshua distributed the tribal allotments to the seven tribes that did not have their land allotments. They're given to them there. Of course, they have to go out and possess their possessions at that point. Overall, we have 32 mentions of Shiloh in the Bible, and it's not just clustered into a single narrative, but these are spread out in Joshua and Judges, 1 Samuel, uh, 1 Kings, Psalms, and then in the book of Jeremiah. Many people would also look to Genesis 
49, 10, and 11 is another possible uh, reference. That's a, a difficult textual issue, whether that's in the original text as Shiloh or not there. Why Shiloh? Well, we might think Joshua was from the tribe of Ephraim, and Shiloh was in Ephraim territory. Um, it's also centrally located. Shiloh was, I believe, part of the Shechem city-state in the late Bronze Age geopolitical scheme. So before the Israelites arrive, you have all these Canaanite city-states, but they're really under Egyptian control completely. And we know this from the Amarna letters, a series of 382 clay tablets that are from the early 14th century uh, BC during the reigns of Amenhotep III and Amenhotep IV. And it's a series of correspondence from these Canaanite rulers back to Pharaoh begging for help because they're being overrun by the Habiru, H-A-B-I-R-U. Now, there are no vowels in Hebrew, so when you subtract those vowels, that leaves you the H-B-R. Uh, they're crying out to Pharaoh, the HBR are overrunning us, everyone's defecting and going over to their side. So there's all of this uprising, and it's perfectly consistent with what you read in the biblical text. And one of them even mentions Shiloh, as I'll, as I'll get to at the, at the end. So here's what you have going on. You have the Jerusalem city-state in the south. You have the Hatzor city-state in the north. You have the Megiddo city-state closer to the coastal plain. And and the Shechem city-states. So these are significant polities. You've got the primary area and then the smaller sites that are associated with that. Now, if the site of I, Joshua 7 and 8, which we spent 21 years excavating, if, if that site was indeed the northern border fortress for the city-state of Jerusalem to... Sh- signal, if you will, back to Jerusalem if there was trouble, then that tells us that there's a border there. And so Shechem is controlling that territory to the north. When you think of Shechem, think of deep patriarchal roots. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, where were Joseph's bones buried when they were carried out of Egypt? They were taken to Shechem. Where was the Abrahamic covenant cut? At Elon Moreh, which is right between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. So you're talking deep patriarchal ties here and we know that the people of Shechem have an affinity affinity with Abraham and his descendants and so I think that Shiloh is part of the Shechem city-state because notice when Joshua and the Israelites arrive here at the end of the conquest so if the conquest begins around 1406 and it uh, concludes around 1400 or 1399 there's no conflict so when they arrive at these other sites they're fighting but not when they arrive at Shiloh. It appears just like you see at Shechem, that covenant renewal ceremony of Joshua chapter 8. They set up the Ark of the Covenant between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Guess what's there? Shechem. That's what's between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Nobody's fighting. They are embracing Yahwehism or monotheism. And so it's very interesting. The text tells us that all Israel joined in together alien and citizen alike in this covenant renewal ceremony. So these people of Shechem have apparently embraced Yahwehism. So what makes you an Israelite is not your bloodline or your pedigree that you can trace your bloodline all the way back. It's your embracing of Yahwehism, of monotheism that makes you uh, a, a true son of Abraham. 
So that affinity that we see at, at Shechem, I, you see the same thing at Shiloh. And so this is my view that Shiloh is part of the Shechem city-state at that time. And that's why they join in with the Israelites. And we have no no destruction level at Shiloh from that time either. We, have, we do have destruction layers, but not from that time period. Okay, so the tabernacle comes to Shiloh around 1399. It's there until about 1075. And so if you do the math, that gives you about 324 years following the biblical timeline. Now, you have a different chronology in the rabbinic literature, in the Mishnah. Two different places talk about this, but the Seder Olam 8, for example, uh, gives us 369 years. It specifically says that the tabernacle was at Shiloh 369 years. So maybe the rabbi had a hard time doing math, but uh, it just doesn't work with the biblical math. So we'll, we'll assume that this was about 324 years. Now, when I say 1075, you should be thinking Philistine destruction because we know from 1 Samuel that the Israelites have an arch enemy and these are the Philistines and they send the Ark of the Covenant to the battle at Ebenezer, Afek Ebenezer, and Hophni and Phinehas are killed there. The Ark of the Covenant is captured there. The Bible never explicitly says that the Philistines destroyed Shiloh. It implies it and Psalm 78 implies it also, but it never comes out and says it. This is where then archaeology comes along and can help us to illuminate the background of the passage. And so we do have a destruction layer that dates to that time period using our ceramic typology. And I'm a ceramicist. That means I'm an expert in ancient pottery. Or as my wife would say, boring. <laughs> I mean, who who sits around all day and studies pottery? And it's not that I'm interested in dishes per se, like modern dishes don't interest me at all, nor does yard work interest me at home. But on the other side of the world, I find that dirt very interesting, and I find those dishes very interesting. And so I'm kind of obsessed with that. So using ceramic typology, radiocarbon dates uh, along with it, we are able to pinpoint a date of about 1075 B.C. for this destruction level. This is the Madaba map. Have any of you been to Jordan and seen this? This is the biblical city of Madaba. And it is the most Christian city in Jordan, probably in the entire Middle East today. And you can go visit St. George's Church there and see this marvel. What happened in the 6th century, these Byzantine Christians who were there decided when they built their new church... Instead of putting in a floor like everyone else had, just a tiled floor, they were going to build a map of the land of the Bible on their, the floor of their church. And it's about the size of your sanctuary here. And so just imagine that you're, you're teaching and you're able to point and say, you know, here's, there's a map all around you. So you're able to say, you know, Sister Debbie over here sitting on top of Jericho. And then if you move over here, you're going to such and such a site. It must have been a great pedagogical tool. And people still study this to this day. Um, I've written articles on this. Um, you see that Shiloh is on the Madaba map. And it specifically says Silo or Shiloh where the ark stayed. So let's make no bones about it. Shiloh matters because the Ark of the Covenant was there, because the Mishkan was there, because the presence of God was there. Um, why are we excavating Shiloh? Because because of that very reason. And the stakes are high. I mean, I did a, a History Channel episode a few years ago 
on the Ark of the Covenant, uh, season three, episode 12, and it's the highest rated show in their history, okay. which goes to show you what good acting will do. Um, no, I'm just kidding. It had nothing to do with the acting. But the topic, the Ark of the Covenant, that's big, okay? And and so the stakes are big. And I would uh, get in a commercial right now. We have a movie coming out in just a few months that will be at theaters here uh, nationwide, but of course here in Houston as well, called The Quest. And what we have done is to follow the route of the Israelites out of Egypt and everywhere the Ark went, we go and we film on location. We're interviewing um, scholars along the way. We've got great computer-generated graphics in there. Kevin Sorbo is our is our narrator for this. And so hopefully you'll really enjoy it. And uh, if you'll go watch it, my kids will be able to eat. And no, they're already grown. But my grandkids might might be able to. So um, we, we do visit Madaba along the way as well. And so you can see Jericho up at the top here and some of these various sites. So quite a fascinating map that when we lose ancient sites, don't you hate it when you lose your city? <laughs> uh, when you lose an ancient city, then you're able to go back to some of these ancient sources and find clues about where you might want to excavate. Now, our dig at Shiloh started... In 2017, in 2016, I published an article on the possible locations of the tabernacle at Shiloh. You can get it off of my academia.edu page easily for free. And I went through the various possibilities of where the tabernacle was. I did not think it was here. So when I chose this spot at Shiloh, this northern slope where those who were there in the summer know exactly where we were, um, I did not think it was there. In fact, I had published an article saying I did not think it, that it was there. And goes to show you what I know, because when it, where I drove the first stake into the ground, it turns out to be right where the tabernacle was located. And so if you would have asked me in my perfect world, Scott, what would you like to find in the Shiloh excavation? I didn't know if we'd be there five years or, or 25 years excavating. We've already done uh, seven, probably have five more that we're going to do. I would have said, well, I mean, the gate, which is mentioned, of course, Eli dies in the gate at Shiloh and the tabernacle. And lo and behold, <laughs> the exact spot that uh, we chose or the Lord led us to or however you want to word that is where I believe we have both. So here's an interesting conundrum. We have this issue of the tabernacle being a tent made of animal skins and then we have the biblical and the extra biblical sources telling us that a permanent structure was built at Shiloh. So let's think about that for a minute. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, and then we have two Mishnaic sources, the Zebayim and the Seder Alam, that both tell us that there was a permanent structure, quasi-tabernacle temple that was built at Shiloh. So let's look at 1 Samuel 3, 13 and 15. The lamp probably the menorah of God had not yet gone out and Samuel was lying down within the temple of the Lord. Now, up to this point, we've been reading about the tabernacle and now we get the word temple suggesting permanency where the ark of God was. Then in verse 15, Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors, delet in Hebrew. Now, wait a minute. Uh, the tabernacle doesn't have doors, the, 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 they're, they're curtains. And it says the house of the Lord, Ba'it, the house, again, talking about a permanent sort of a structure. So this was often, you know, preying on our minds, like, why do you have this shift from temporary language to permanent language? 
And then you look at the, the sources. This is a second century source from the Mishnah called the Zebaim. And it says, after they, the Israelites, came to Shiloh, God forbade the high places. There was no roof beam there. So, in other words, there was no roof. But below was a house of stone, and above were hangings, and this was the resting place. Then we have the Seder Olam. Shiloh's sanctuary had stone walls covered by tapestries. Israel worshipped in it for 369 years before its destruction. So, before we ever start digging, I've got the biblical text in 1 Samuel 3, and then I have two Mishnah passages that are suggesting that a permanent structure. So, it was on my radar. Perhaps we're going to have foundations of a building, even wall stubs that are still standing with a tent that was over it. So, which incidentally is probably exactly what David's tabernacle was in the city of David. If you saw me on TBN's In Grace with Jim Scudder, I actually took them into the city of David. And for the first time now, we know where David's tabernacle was. That's a whole nother super interesting story for another time but you can it's on youtube if you just kind of youtube uh, in grace my name city of david then you can you can watch that episode now here's one artist's rendering of what this would have looked like and it's a pretty good rendering because those are the mountains of shiloh there that's exactly what they they look like and shiloh is really neat because in, in jerusalem you have urban sprawl and so you really have to imagine what it would have looked like in biblical times but in shiloh i mean you just look around you and you're still seeing what they were looking at during during those times so perhaps this is a a pretty good idea of having stone walls and then a tent as a roof sort of i think the idea was we're not going to build ourselves houses while god is still living in a tent we know david thought that way so just a couple of generations before david we have no houses at shiloh no domestic structures even though we know they're living there from the biblical text and all the pottery and everything else that we have from that time period but as soon as this permanent structure is built we start excavating houses from that time period so it seems like in their mind they're thinking you know, we're going to build God a house and then we can build houses for ourselves as well. Remember, it's not the common people who are living at Shiloh. Hannah and Elkanah don't live at Shiloh. They come to Shiloh, okay? It's the priests who are living there. And so the, I think probably the domestic structures that we are excavating from that time period are likely from the priest. And we're talking specifically about Eli and his family. Now, here are eight interesting things that we should consider in archaeological support so we looked at the textual support let's see if it synchronizes with the archaeology did we have a permanent structure at shiloh and we'll go through these one at a time first we have the monumental building so we know the dimensions we looked at those already uh, this, this building is east-west. The Bible says that the tabernacle was east-west. And so back in season one, we began to excavate uh, this building and we began to see our wall 10 emerge. And I noted that it was east-west. And so at this point, all I knew is we had a 1.2 meter wide wall. It was very long. It dated very likely to the Iron Age one period. 
and it was east-west. So, of course, that caught my attention because I knew the tabernacle was east-west, but that's all I knew initially. But I told one of my graphics guys, you know, give me the dimensions of the tabernacle, take a drone shot, and then superimpose the dimensions on it, and this is what we got. Turns out, after five more seasons of excavation, it was spot on. And so where we said these walls should be is where they began to emerge as we excavated deeper. Now, I thought about this, and I remembered the church that we had excavated at our previous dig at Kerbidal uh, Makater, and this is a, a fifth, fourth, originally 4th century church rebuilt in the 5th century. And so I took the dimensions of the tabernacle, and I superimposed them on top of that church, and look what you get, a spot-on fit. Now, isn't that interesting, that early Christians were perceiving themselves in terms of being the tabernacle of God? Now, I guess that shouldn't surprise us so much because both Peter and Paul use that language. We are the, the temple of the Lord and we're being built with living stones as a habitation for the Lord. But I just didn't know that, that early Christians were architecturally reflecting their belief in that. In John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So the idea of the incarnation is that of tabernacle. What was the tabernacle made from? Skin. So in Greek, the word is skene, the tabernacle. Skin, skene. And so the word, Christ, the incarnation, took on flesh and tabernacled among us. So I would suggest to you that the better we understand the tabernacle, the better we might understand the incarnation and how we interface with our Savior. Now, as we excavate, of course, we track everything and we have to understand which loci attach to which strata so that we can accurately recreate the site. And that's what it's all about. The goal of archaeology is not excavation. The goal is publication. If all I do is excavate a site and I do not publish it, I have destroyed the evidence and made it inaccessible to others. You see, this is a big problem. And historically, we've had people, it's a lot more fun to excavate than it is to publish. That's the hard work. Um, and so some guy digs, 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 and all of a sudden he dies or she dies and has not published all of that. We've destroyed the evidence of the biblical record then at that point. And so our, our burden, our responsibility is to do that. And so that's a very high priority for me. So as we go, we track everything that we're excavating. We're recreating it in various ways. Um, and then I have a co-director, I have an assistant director, so that if something were to happen to me, they, ideally they know everything that I know and they're empowered then to make sure that this would happen in my absence. Now, we have uh, 16 different universities that are participating in our consortium at Shiloh. This last summer, we had 222 registered volunteers plus about 150 um, occasional volunteers. So about 400 people digging with us. It is now the largest excavation in the world. And so you, uh, your interest and, and so forth really, really means a lot to us. So my students come with me and students from other universities. And then this is sort of what we learn in the classroom. Then we're able to go out into the lab and this is our laboratory. And then we're able to put it into practice when we get into the field. And anyone can come, by the way, anyone of any age, um, Someone asked me yesterday if he was too old. I told him I prefer older volunteers. I mean, they're already accustomed to pain and suffering. So they tend to do very well. 
So I'm leaving on Tuesday for Europe. I'm going to be speaking in Copenhagen, Denmark, and then in Stuttgart, Germany at two archaeology conferences. And this is what I'll be sharing uh, while I'm there. So I'm kind of practicing on you tonight. But um, the, these things matter, and there's a lot of interest in them. This is that wall 10, that very first wall. Now we have the, all the other walls, well, all but one of the other walls now. <clears throat> but look at the size of that. That's preserved to up to three meters in height. So this was, of course, all underground. We had Byzantine walls way up here that we excavated and removed. Then underneath that, we had early Roman walls that we excavated and then removed. And then we get down into this sweet spot, and it's incredibly well-preserved. So that's our original east-west wall. You can understand the significance of that. You know, the, the idea, if these stones could talk, what stories they would tell. And Jesus talked about stones, inanimate stones, being able to communicate and, um, you know, they really can. These artifacts, people ask me, are, have you found anything? <laughs> Just, I laugh. We excavate 2,000 pieces of pottery a day. Uh, and that's apart from a thousand other objects and artifacts and glass and stone and bone and seeds. And so, oh yeah, we, we find everything. Everything you have in your house, they had in their houses except the electronics pretty much. I mean, uh, you got splinters. They got splinters too and they had to have tweezers also. I mean, just anything you would have, they would have. Now, usually when we find it, it's broken or corroded or something, but occasionally they're whole, whole vessels and whole objects as well. So the things we're finding in and around this building should be of great interest to us, shouldn't they? Because this building matches the dimensions given in the Bible. It's in a ratio of two to one from holy to most holy space. And it's oriented east-west. So let me make my case for you. This is what we believe this looks like at Shiloh. You can see the outline of the structure. And it's kind of interesting because on this northern platform, you have pilgrims that go there, just like pilgrims go to Jerusalem and go to the Via Dolorosa and they weep and they pray. Of course, we all know that's not the real Via Dolorosa. That, that doesn't mean it's not meaningful to these pilgrims, but just because a tour guide tells you something doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. Um, so people are now catching on at Shiloh that, wait a minute, we may have been praying at the wrong spot, and maybe this is is the location that we should really have on our radar. That big wall that you see, that's the big fortification wall. It's 5.3 meters wide, and it encircles about five acres in uh, inside the wall. We also have ceramic palm granites. Now, you think, big deal. Who cares about a palm granite? Well, wait a minute. God cares. He told the Israelites, when you come into the land and you gain a foothold, you're going to have seven sacred fruits. There's dates and figs and olives and so forth and palm granites. But it's only the palm granite that goes into the Holy of Holies. That's right. On the hem of the priest's garments, there's not only bells, there are pomegranates that's right bells and pomegranates alternating on the priestly garments and so what goes into the presence of the lord the pomegranate it's kind of interesting because that motif exists not only in the tabernacle but in solomon's temple there are 200 pomegranates that adorn saw no other fruit only the pomegranate so i think we must then Think deeply about this when you lie in your bed when you drive in your car you should think about this why why is the pomegranate so cool? Why did God like the pomegranate more than the other fruits? How did it typify him? I'll come back to that in a second. 
So this is an example of publications. So we find ceramic palm granites with hooks on them and we publish it. So this is a peer-reviewed journal. Um, then we publish this. Now it's entered into the academic record. Others can begin to cite this. And this is where the permanent record of what we have done at Shiloh um, comes comes to bear. I had a sense when we found our first palm granites that maybe the Danish who first dug at Shiloh 100 years ago, that maybe they had excavated some and had misidentified them. And my intuition was right because we went to the Royal Danish Museum, which is where I'll be next week. And uh, they're the ones who sponsored the Danish dig 100 years ago. And sure enough, there was something that they had misidentified. It was actually a palm granite. So some of the excavating or digging we do is not always in the field. Sometimes it's in libraries and museums and basements and so forth as well. Now, here's what the first palm granite looks like. And you can see the, the hook. And these are quite small. And the little flower at the bottom, that's called the calyx. So this is before it's going to bloom. Does anyone know, without Googling, how many, how many seeds are in a palm granite? All right, let me ask you this. How many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? Remember that commercial? Okay. So no, he could never quite get there. He would lose his patience. I've tried a bunch of times to count the number of seeds in a palm granite. I finally succeeded. And uh, according to the literature, all palm granites have 613 seeds. And uh, sure enough, from my experience, that is true. Now, maybe you've got an odd palm granite here or there that has 612 or 614. But uh, they tell us 613, and that's what my research has borne out as well. I don't know what that means, but I think we should think about the 613 commandments in the Hebrew Bible, and maybe this is why the pomegranate had some a special significance. It's also a delicious fruit. I think it must have something to do with fecundity, which is the potential for fertility, for reproduction. Um, in the ancient world, in the biblical world, it was all about fertility. Your crops have to be fertile. Your animals have to be fertile. Your wife has to be fertile. You don't survive without fertility. And so this idea, that's why Hannah, the whole Hannah story at Shiloh, this is why she's in such anguish because she has not been able to have children. And so she goes in desperation and cries out to God. Take Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, take Mary's Magnificat in Luke chapter 2 and set them side by side and they're almost word for word, the prayer of Hannah and the prayer of Mary. So these pomegranates are very interesting and this is found right next to that wall 10, which that's a tabernacle motif. So now we've got a building, kind of walks like a duck here. So we got a building, the dimensions of the tabernacle. It's oriented east-west, separated on ratios of two to one that we have pomegranates around it. Nowhere else in Israel do you have ceramic pomegranates except at another site, another Levitical site called Yokneam, Levitical site, and in Jerusalem, and that's it. So only places that were, were sacred have pomegranates been found. Here's the second pomegranate. Now, the second indicator I want to think about is uh, are the altar horns. So we have found several horns from a demolished four-horned altar in this building. Okay. The first horn we found was actually in secondary usage. You can see that sticking up. 
That's a Byzantine wall. And so we have this all over the place, like stones from one period are being reused in, a, in another period. This is a classic case. Everyone agrees with me and accepts this. This is an, uh, an altar horn here. So you don't use iron tools to form the horn. You're looking for naturally occurring features within stones. And then when you find those, those are used as altar horns. Here's another one that we excavated inside the building. You can see where this would clearly be a horn of an altar. So the horns, of course, are used to bind the sacrifice. And that's what it's all about. Let's make no mistake. It's about sacrifice. Leviticus 17.11, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Of course, the writer of Hebrews picks this up, but it's about forgiveness of sin and that's why people like hannah and elkanah and others come to shiloh they're just like us same hang-ups we have same need for forgiveness we we fracture our vertical relationship with god through sin we fracture our horizontal relationships with each other through sin and it's through the shedding of blood that we're able to reestablish those relationships and that's why they came to shiloh just like us Here's another altar horn in secondary usage. You can see it sticking up in this wall. And the, the fourth one was found in a burn context that dates to about 1075 BC. Now, here is a plastered floor and that we've come down on, and we love floor levels. And if it's plastered, even better, because that gives us what we call a sealed locus. A sealed locus is like gold because that means everything underneath it has not been disturbed since antiquity. So you have all kinds of things that can happen to mess up your stratigraphy. And you can have uh, rodents and snakes and things can burrow into the ground. You can have later people can dig down to build foundations. So all kinds of things can mess up your stratigraphy. But when you do get a sealed locus, now you can say, all right, what is underneath that sealed layer, we can date concretely. Then I can relatively date the things that are above it and the things that are beneath it. And that's what we got here. And that was the, the destruction layer. And so you can see this, this thick destruction layer. And before we went under the floor, I told our guys, we're, if there's burned material here and if there's a destruction layer, we're going to carbon date it. And my bet is... Maybe you're not supposed to bet. But anyway, we probably bet like a burger or something. Nothing, nothing too terribly important. My bet is that it's going to date to about 1075 BC. And the pottery on top was these were Iron Age 1 collard rim jars. So then logically, it should be older than that beneath it. And that is exactly what we found. You can see the carbon date was 1060 plus or minus 30. So 1075 is where I expected us to be. And that's where we were. You can see another look at that burn level. So now we have this Philistine destruction, which gives us a terminal date at Shiloh of about 1075. So we're, we're synchronizing really nicely with the biblical text. Now, I'm an evangelical Christian, and that means I am a minority in the world of archaeology in, in the land of the Bible. And what the, these students are told PhD students, for example, at the six Israeli universities, uh, you can't trust the Bible. It's not a reliable historical source. You don't take it seriously, which is kind of weird because they'll take the Egyptian literature or the Mesopotamian literature, and it's innocent until proven guilty, but the Bible is guilty until proven innocent. It's mythology. You don't take it seriously. And so 
I engage in that arena of ideas and, you know, I'm not nasty about it, but I'm, uh, I'm building bridges. I'm saying, why do we keep finding these synchronisms between the archaeological data and the biblical text if the Bible is not a reliable source? And, you know, many of them have changed their minds about this. And I'm going to tell you about one, uh, in a few minutes. We are also finding Murex shells. Now, who in the world cares about a Murex shell? Or I guess the first question is, what's a Murex shell from the coast, from the Mediterranean, doing at the highest point in Israel? Because we're in the central hill country, way up top. So, why? What is the purpose of the Murex shell? We call this a pregnant pause, okay? I'll give you a hint. It has to do with color. Talk to phone a friend. Um, there's a woman in the New Testament named Lydia, and she trafficked in what? Purple goods. Uh, how did she get purple goods? From the Murex shell. And we know from the Bible that the high priest's garments are dyed, and this is how you get the dye. So everyone agrees on this. From the Murex shells, they're very, very expensive. They come from the coast. And now we begin to find them at Shiloh. Now, that's crazy because you don't find them anywhere else in Israel. And this is inside the building. So now we're finding verisimilitude or a consistency of what you would expect to find. If the text was accurate, these are the types of things you would expect that you would find Ceramic pomegranates and now murex shells. I love that shell. And then we have storage rooms. Now, why do we care about storage rooms? Well, when you go to Shiloh, let's imagine that you're Hannah and Elkanah and you show up at Shiloh. What is it that you're going to do at Shiloh, by the way, besides pray? You're commanded in the law of Moses to tithe you are going to bring tithes and offerings to the lord and that's where you bring them now just exactly how are you planning to do that are you planning to go to tabernacle.org and make a secure online donation because if so you're in trouble how about write a check cash coins not going to happen until the sixth century none of those means of exchange exist so exactly how are you going to obey the command of the lord to tithe when you show up at shiloh what are you bringing with you commodity barley and and you know figs and sheep yeah you're bringing your your agricultural pastoral livestock and remains of your harvest so if you had a hundred bushels you're bringing 10 of them to shiloh what are they going to do with all that stuff because after the harvest is when everyone's going to tithe you can't tithe till after the harvest you give an offering before the harvest that's a first fruits offering um but those are little offerings the big the big ones are going to come after the harvest when you know what you have so what are you going to do with all that what do we find 
storage rooms lie in the interior of the site here on the north, only on the north, only next to this monumental building in those storage rooms are full of really big storage jars. I mean, as big as I am in some cases. If you come to our museum in Katy, the Joshua Judges and Jesus Museum, you'll see one of those jars there. And that's what they did. They held the tithes within them. And then, of course, they were consumed throughout the year. So just dozens and dozens of these massive jars inside these storage rooms, exactly what you would expect to find if indeed this was the tabernacle. Now, I had two members of the Israeli Antiquities Authority who came to visit me this last summer. And as I was giving them a tour around and I began to show them this monumental building and I was pointing out that it was east west, I was pointing out the dimensions and And one of them looked at me and said, you're not suggesting this is the tabernacle, are you? I said, well, I'm just telling you what we have. And so as I kept talking, he got so excited. Um, He's the head of publications for the IAA. He said, it has to be. I mean, what else could it be? You can't have two buildings at the same place at the same time with with the same dimensions. If it's not the tabernacle, what is it? I think that's a pretty good question. So you can see these clusters of storage rooms next to this monumental building. And here is a nice look from above down into those storage rooms. So that's your big uh, wall there. And then there's your storage rooms that line the interior of the site. Some of those walls over them are from different time periods. So you just trust me that those walls that are perpendicular to the fortification wall are the storage rooms that date to the tabernacle period at Shiloh. And what do we get out of them? There you go. Collared rim jars. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you go to a site in Israel and you have no pig bones at that site in that stratum and you have four room houses and inside those four room houses, you have collared rim jars. Guess what you have? You have Israelites, okay? These are the ethnic indicators of your ancestors. That's the type of jar that they use that is ubiquitous. That's the signature of the Israelites, the collared rim jar. What do we find inside those storage rooms? Dozens and dozens of these collared rim jars. Here you can see some of the elevations that we take. We try to record everything as we go. You can see me sitting outside that wall, just how massive the the stones are in the fortification wall. We also have a favisa, which is a sacred bone deposit. And if you go due east of this monumental building, like just from me to where the lady is in the back there, or maybe to the back wall where that red couch is, you'll come upon a massive bone deposit with about 100,000 bones in it. They are all bones from the biblical sacrificial system. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? And mixed in with them is pottery from the time of the tabernacle and lots of riches and wealth and gold. That's right, gold. You know, most archaeologists work their whole career and they never excavate gold. Gold is very rare. And we find numerous gold pieces, offerings within this favisa. This isn't just any garbage dump. These are the remains of the sacrificial system that we are now excavating. That's mind-boggling. And this is in our area D. Everybody wants to work in area D. 
And there's another beautiful look at it. You can see the sun rising in the morning. Now, if you are going to go with me this summer, you're going to have to be able to get up early in the morning because we beat the heat. We start early, but boy, do you get a payoff. And when you see the sun come up over the the ridge, you think by that point, your coffee has kicked in, your Advil has kicked in, and you think life is good. I can do this. This is going to be fun. Here's some of those bones. You can just see that, uh, of course, we have a, a, a zoo archaeologist on our staff. And so his job is to sort all these thousands of bones. Uh, you know, we know which animal it's from, which bone it's from. We're disproportionately, by the way, from the right side. More bones from the right side than from the left side, which is a biblical indicator. The right side of the animal is the priest's portion. So each one of these bones is talking to me. They're telling me a story. The pottery, the bones, the stones, they're all inductively giving us a picture of what life was like in biblical times at ancient Shiloh. And remember, Jerusalem is still a pagan city at this point for three centuries. That's a long time. If you want to connect with God, you don't do it in Jerusalem. You go to Shiloh. Here's some of the Pottery from the period of Joshua. This is what we would call a bichrome in a bowl with bichrome interior concentric circles. That is a telltale sign for what we call the LB1B, LB2A horizon or around 1400 BC, if you want to put it in simple terms. But boy, when you see that mixed in with those bones, you're looking at direct chronological evidence of the sacrificial, sacrificial system at Shiloh. Here's a chalice from that period. Also, chalices are very cultic. Here's some of the gold. This is an eight-pointed gold star. And um, we have a a, a number of these that that we're excavating. And other star motifs as well. Perhaps this is the Numbers 24 star motif uh, of the Messiah who's going to come. Can't know that for sure, but that's... uh, something that's on my radar. Here's that same star after it's been cleaned. Everything we excavate, we have we have a person on our staff who's a conservator, and so she professionally cleans everything for me. Some of it needs to be treated chemically so that it doesn't decompose. And so, again, it's my responsibility to make sure not only is it excavated correctly, but that it's recorded correctly and that it's stabilized. We restore all the walls. We do conservation at the end of the season. So our goal is that for generations after we're gone that people will be able to come and see what the Lord did in that place. And then we have the gate of Shiloh, believe it or not. Um, This came about uh, serendipitously. This is our architect, Lane Rittmeyer, probably the world's leading expert on the Temple Mount. If you search his name, you'll see what I'm talking about. Dr. Mark Hassler, they're asking themselves a perplexing question. Why do we have a hole in the wall? Why is there a gap here? The whole point of the wall is to keep people out. And we have this gaping hole in this entrance into the city. That seems like it's a gate. And so at this point, we didn't have other evidence, but we began to track this. And sure enough, with each season, we got more and more evidence that we had an entrance into the city here. Now, this was strange because most people thought it would have been on the south. Here's a socket stone, like a lower socket stone, which is what you would expect to find in the gate and then a smaller upper socket stone nearby. So you're getting this idea that maybe we've got a gate here. And then this last season, just a few months ago, look at these piers here that begin to emerge um, parallel to, to a massive Bronze Age wall. And now we begin to see what the gate complex looked like. 
When you read in the Bible about the gate, don't think like a door, like a swinging door. A, a city gate is like the size of your sanctuary here. There's three chambers on one side, three chambers on the other side, and you pass through the middle of it, and there's a door on each chamber. So it's a, a whole complex that takes place. Many things take place in the city gate. The archives are there. Justice is meted out there. It's a flea market, if you will. People can come and barter, buy and trade within the, the city gate as well. This is um, what I believe it looks like. We'll clarify this in coming seasons. But you come into the outer gate, which leads you into the inner gate. And where does that lead you? Right to that monumental building. Do you see the logic to it? I mentioned earlier the Amarna letters. Uh, Elamarna 288 talks about the, the gate of Silu. Behold, Turbasu, this is the Egyptian governor, was slain in the city gate of Silu by the Habiru, by the way. The king did nothing. Pharaoh did nothing. Behold, servants who were joined to the Habiru smote Zimreda of Likisu. This is Lakish, another uh, famous city at the time. And Yaptihada was slain in the city gate of Silu. The king did nothing. Why has he not called them to account? You see, Pharaoh never answers a single one of these Amarna letters. Either he's unwilling or he's unable. And I suppose if you just lost your military, and I suppose if you'd lost your labor force, and I suppose if you'd suffered a series of ecological disasters, that you might have difficulty responding as well. We also have a northern approach road. You can see where this leads coming up from the modern Highway 60. I understand that just like a week ago, a movie came out called Highway 60. Um, in fact, your pastor called me today and was telling me about it. I, I hadn't even seen it yet, but I mean, Highway 60, I know better than I know Houston. Um, so you're on Highway 60 here and you look up and you can see this approach road. That approach road leads you to that gate and that gate leads you to that monumental building and that monumental building leads you to that bone pile, that favisa. Now we have many small finds, of course, you can imagine. We wet sift everything. We have created a state-of-the-art technology where we wash the matrix. We don't just dry sift it. We wash it. We built our own water tower. And so it's a state-of-the-art facility. And this means for every one small find that we used to find, we now find four. We went back through the Danish dump pile from 100 years ago. For every one scarab or bula that they published, we found four in their dump pile. Okay? Now, it's not that they were bad and we're good. That's just that our technology is that much better. We can wash the matrix, and when you take all the dirt off these small objects, all of a sudden you can see incredible things. Can you see the fingerprint on this bula? That is the fingerprint of an ancient Israelite on that bula. And that's you can see part of the bula there, the Egyptian hieroglyphs uh, on it. It's very interesting because now we can do DNA research. And so when we find human remains... We're able to actually do DNA analysis and we're building a database of, of ancient Israelites. So it's really, really interesting some of the technology that we're able to use today. We have scarabs. This is Tutmosis III, who's the most powerful of all the pharaohs. That's 15th century scarab, um, also from right next to this building. And then here's a summary of some of our findings in these first five uh, seasons. And we're really in a sweet spot. So we're looking at another four or five seasons to finish these critical areas that we're in, the Favisa, the monumental building, 
and the gate, and then I'll turn my focus toward publication at that at that point, so that uh, that we have a an academic record and and a public record about what has occurred there at ancient Shiloh in biblical times. And um, we have plenty of time, I think, for questions if you have any. You feel like you've been drinking from a fire hose? Yes, ma'am. Okay, I'll I'll have to go back to the beginning to get those. Let's see. Yes, what were the dimensions of the tabernacle? Was the question. And there it is. Yes, anybody else? Oh, I see. So you have to do all the... Uh, it's 100 cubits long, it's 50 cubits wide, and it's 5 cubits high. Oh, okay. Does that help? Okay. Yes. Very similar to the walls in Joshua's altar, they're uncut stones, is that true? Yeah, the, the question is, do... Do these walls resemble the walls of Joshua's altar on Mount Ephal? Are they uncut? And that is correct. They're uncut stone. Yes, so conservation work. We come in, we, we spend a week when the excavation is over, and we have a, a system that we use. Not all walls have to be conserved. Big walls, if they're stable, then we don't have to do anything to them. But if they're unstable for any reason, and many times they are, then what we do is we remove all the dirt from the wall, first with trowels and brushes, then we actually bring in a power washer and we wash the wall to get all the dirt out of it. And then we have a special compound that we use. Think of like a big caulk gun. So and then we so we put our compound inside these big caulk guns. We actually invented these. And then we can shoot it deep inside the stones into the interior of the wall and then using trowels, we apply more. We finish it off with, with wire brushes to clean it up. And so it's that mortar that is going to, to give them the strength to, to, to remain. So any unstable walls, we put about 10% of our budget into conservation of the site. And our water that we're using in wet sifting, we recycle all that water. So we have a water tower and we have a pump. And so the water's all being recycled. And when we're done, we drain it off into the fields and we drain the, the berries and the flowers and the tomatoes that are growing down below. Yeah, so very ecologically friendly. Yes. And would you say that uh, Shiloh is the largest excavation in the world right now or even in the past? So the question is, did I say Shiloh is the largest excavation in the world now or in the past? Uh, it is now uh, the largest excavation in the world. And, uh, you know, we started out years ago. We, so we were working at Kerbet El-Makater, and we were in the middle of nowhere. We never got a visitor. I mean, how could they ever find us? We're in the middle of nowhere. We have no water. We have no bathrooms. I mean, it's a primitive. And so the team that was with me back in those days... Um, how, how did Henry VIII put it? No, Henry V put it. He who sheds his blood with me today, he will be my brother. And those who, those who suffered with me through those times, they think they've gone to heaven now at Shiloh. I mean, we've got running water and bathrooms and a coffee bar on site. And, you know, it's a, quite quite plush. So um, in, in ancient times, no, it was not, you know, the, the largest dig. But it's, um, it's, it's a happening place now.
Yeah. We're sort of like, we have so many visitors every day. You can imagine hundreds and hundreds of people and all these groups come by and they look at our group and they throw them peanuts and our guys roll over in the squares. And uh, so, I mean, we're just thrilled that people are watching us because we were in obscurity for so long. Yes, anybody else? Yes, please. You have a museum in Katy? Yes, sir. It's called the Joshua Judges and Jesus Museum, and it's on the campus of the Bible Seminary, the Bible Seminary. And so if you just search that, your navigational device will take you straight to us. And you can go to our website, thebibleseminary.edu, and schedule a guided tour if you'd like to have a a guide, if you want to bring a group, or you can just come on your own uh, anytime that you would like. Um, and some of you have been there, and it's uh, it's it's quite good. We have cu- a couple today drove in from Louisiana to go to the museum. We have people come from all over the U.S. and all over the world. So hopefully you'll take advantage of it. It's free. Yeah. Yes, Bryce. I comment about the pomegranate. I seem to remember, and I'm, I'm not sure if it was a pomegranate, but I think it was, is that when you cut it, that, that the seed structure is... Uh, has to do with that Fibonacci sequence and the golden ratio. Have you ever seen anything about that? Yeah, I don't. I don't know enough to speak intelligently about it. About you know how what happens when you cut it. Yeah. So I'll, I'll try to educate myself better. Yes, ma'am. The priest or a prophet died in front of the wall of Shiloh. Uh, Eli did. Someone die at the wall of Shiloh. Eli, First Samuel four, he died in the gate. So when he got the news that his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, had been killed at the Battle of Ebenezer and that the Ark had been captured, he fell over backward and died. He was quite advanced in age at that point. Um, and his daughter-in-law is giving birth, at the, I mean, literally in the process of giving birth. So put here, th- imagine this domino of events. You've got the, the Ark of the Covenant is captured. You've got the defeat of the Israelites. You've got the deaths of Hophni and Phinehas, scoundrels. They're probably better off without them. Um, and then this runner comes all the way back. And incidentally, it's 26 miles from Ebenezer to Shiloh. So he runs all the way back. Get it? It's a marathon. So he runs all the way back and gives this news. Eli dies, and then his poor daughter-in-law is in labor. So she gives birth, and they name the poor kid Ichabod. Yeah. So the glory of the Lord is departed. But he actually, if you keep reading, just kind of search his name, he pops up later in the narratives. He's actually wearing the ephod, and so he's a descent, direct descendant of Eli. And so apparently he plays some priestly function, although not at Shiloh. Jeremiah 7.12, incidentally, is my new favorite verse. So you might want to make it yours. Jeremiah 7.12 says, Go now to Shiloh. There you go. Yes. How do you become a volunteer? How do you become a volunteer? It's a great question. org is the website. org. All the details are there, costs, all the specifications. And uh, it's uh, we have tours also that are built into the dig. So like you can do a pre-dig tour and then stay for the first part of the dig, or you can do the last of the dig and stay for the post-dig tour. And so there's a lot of options, but it's all at digshotlight.org. And literally, you know, we're equal opportunity. We have people who are really old and people who are really young and everything in between. About half of them are students, half of them are retired folks and, you know, people of all abilities. And I really enjoy kind of putting the whole team together, finding out there's so many skills that you'll find that people have life skills um, and just kind of getting those skills. Someone's an artist and then somebody else 
you know, as a photographer and just getting all that working together for a common purpose is very meaningful. Yeah. Yes. You mentioned earlier how this is changing what some of your peers think about the Bible. Can you share something? Yeah. So I'll give you a good example. Um, Adam Zertal, who was the excavator of Mount Ebal, uh, was um, an atheist, if you will. I mean, he, he grew up in a kibbutz and had no awareness of God and never even read the Bible. If you can imagine excavating biblical sites and you've not even read the Bible. Um, so he didn't even know what he was excavating at Mount Ebal. And when he, once he became aware of that, he began to read the biblical text. One of his volunteers showed it to him. He was transformed. I mean, he was transformed. He was a, a professor at the University of Haifa, typical university professor. And now all of a sudden, Adam's walking around with his Bible, and all he wants to talk about is Bible and archaeology. I mean, it was a crisis in academia. It really was. Like, what are we going to do with Adam? We can't just have our professors going around talking like this, you know. Uh, but he became an ardent believer in the historicity of the text, and there are others as well. Had a one Israeli archaeologist, I won't tell you which site, but um, she was excavating. I happened to be there with a group. She saw who I was. She said, oh, pulled me off to the side. She said, oh, Scott, I, she said, I'm following what you're doing. I'm so excited. She said, I believe, I believe the same thing you do. She said, I'm a believer, but don't tell anyone. You know. So, yeah. Yes, ma'am. We were there in June, and uh, where the tent was, is that where they think the Ark of the Covenant is buried? Where the tent was, I'm not sure. Well, I wasn't there, so I don't know to which tent you're referring. That's all right. We were there in June, so if you were there when we were there and they were our tents, then there would have been lots of tents. Yeah. Black. A covering. It wasn't really the tent. It was yeah, the, the I mean, that's part of our thing. And so the answer is probably yes. If we're thinking of the same thing, probably yes, that's the area. It was the east, east and west kind of thing. Probably so. Okay, thank yeah. you. You have to come back this summer to be sure. <laughs> yes, Bryce. One more question. When, when uh, the curse tablet was found at Sifting, were, were you there in the day that they actually... Found that oh, of course. Yeah, no, nobody can dig if I'm not there. The license is in my name, and so when I'm not there, there's no work happening. Um, yes. So the the woman who was wet sifting um, happened to be our most providentially was our most experienced wet sifting uh, staff person, and her name's Frankie Snyder. And when um, she called, I was like from here to this gentleman in the green. And she said, Scott, you better come see this. And so I know when I hear that, that's either really bad or really good. And uh, when I walked over, she just points down at the tray. And when I saw it, I immediately knew what it was. And she did too. And I called Abigail over and Abigail immediately recognized it. It's not like it's some mystery. It's a known quantity in archaeology. We know what curse tablets are. They're called defixios. We've seen hundreds of them. We know what they are. We were just in shock that we had a curse tablet from the mountain of the curse. Um, you know, that's we were just kind of in awe of that. And, but at that point, I still had no idea that it would have text uh, on it. We didn't discover that until later. Yeah. Great question. 
Um, it's kind of funny, you know, all my life I wanted to be known as a blessing and then you, know, you, you have a curse and this is, this is a really big deal. But I think the curse is important because the altar was built on Mount Ebal. And Mount Ebal was the mountain of the curse. Mount Gerizim is the mountain of the blessing. You don't need an altar on the blessing. So the altar is on the place of failure, the place of sin. That's where you find it. And this curse represents, I think, all those curses of Deuteronomy, all the things that will happen if you violate the, the terms of God's covenant. And, of course, you're going to. That's the kicker of the whole thing. You get all these curses in Deuteronomy if you don't keep all these things of the law. You're not going to be able to keep all the things of the law. And so what do they do? They take this curse tablet and they lay it on the altar. What happens then? The sprinkling of blood. Do you see the imagery? The blood covers the curse. So the man who will own up to his sin, who will accept responsibility, will not have those curses if he'll come to the altar. Pretty powerful imagery. Yeah. So, anybody else? Yes, sir. I'd love to. Um, thank you for having me. It's it's been fun, and look forward to getting to know you guys better. And uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight with these awesome people, all those who are watching online. And I just pray that um, your your word would have an entrance and that it would be mixed with faith. And we thank you for the privilege that we have to know you and to make you known to others. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.